Uh, I don't know how much snow we got, like in the last week, 12 inches maybe. It's a lot of snow, cold temperatures coming tomorrow. Uh, I'm very grateful all of you are here. It would have been awkward to just simply preach to my wife. Uh, she's already heard the sermon. She doesn't want to hear it again. So I'm glad that you're here. Um, for those of you who don't know me, there might be a couple of you. Um, just as the bulletin says, uh, my name is Dave, uh, Dave Andreessen. I'm one of the elders here. Um, a lot of you maybe haven't seen me uh, recently. Uh, we, we've had a lot of illness. We've been out of town. I've been doing a lot of preaching and speaking, sharing the vision. Uh, for the church plant that we're in the process of doing. That's in Avondale, just west of us. Uh, the Avondale neighborhood is bordered by Addison on the north, Diversity on the south, the Chicago River on the east, and, and roughly Milwaukee on the west. 40,000 people, two square miles, little gospel presence there. And that's where God's called us to plant Resurrection City Church. So uh, I've been trying to cast that vision, preaching, speaking wherever I can, that God might put a burden on people's heart for the Avondale neighborhood. So I'm here this morning. Pastor Sergey is not. He's, uh, I, I was thinking this morning, if there's anyone who doesn't have an excuse to miss church, it's the guy that lives right next door in the parsonage, but he's not here. He can't blame the snow. No, uh, Pastor Sergey has the week off. He is worshiping probably elsewhere, I, I hope. He's probably sleeping. Just get on him. Get on him. Get on his case. No, he's uh, worshiping elsewhere uh, with other saints, and so... He asked me uh, to preach. As I began thinking about and praying about what God has for us, God led me to Acts 27. It's a very interesting passage. Uh, It's a large portion. It's a whole chapter. It's Paul's journey to Rome. Paul's imprisoned. He's being sent off to Rome. Uh, It's it's something you might see like you think you'd see on the History Channel, like a retelling of this journey, uh, a shipwreck, all this kind of stuff. Uh, I'm always wondering, are they going to find treasure at some point? Um, It's a very interesting passage, but God led me there because uh, just a few months ago, God used this passage to really just soften my heart, to expand my heart, um, and to show me himself. So that's where we're going to find ourselves this morning, Acts chapter 27, verses 13 through 44. It's It's a large passage of scripture, but we'll get through it. Um... Like I said, the Lord used it to encourage me when I was in a very tough season. In fact, my wife and I have been in a very difficult season for probably six or seven months. The word season always intrigues me. Like, I've never met someone who doesn't know Christ and uses that word outside of the weather. Spring, summer, fall, but Christians love to say season. You know, I'm in a tough season, I'm in a dry season, I'm in a refining season. I don't know why we use that. Maybe we get that from the uh, author of Ecclesiastes who tells us, um, uh, in Ecclesiastes 3.1, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Uh, the truth, truth be told, as certainly at least in my life, and I think probably for most of us, those seasons often resemble storms. Storm might be a better term uh, when we go through these difficult um, periods in our life. So the question, the question is, does the believer have any hope in the midst of the storm? And yes, we do. Our text today is going to show us that we do. In the midst of life's storms, the believer has hope. Hope in Jesus Christ. This hope is evidenced in four ways we're going to see in our text. We're going to see that in the midst of the storm, we have God's presence. We have His promise, we have His plan, and we have His power. We are not alone in the midst of the storm. 
we have God with us. Now, at Christian Fellowship, we preach exegetically. We work through uh, books of the Bible, one verse, one chapter at a time. We haven't been in the book of Acts at all. We're we're pretty much going to parachute into it today. So I just want to help us get our bearings so we can sort of sail along with our text today. What we need to know is that the book of Acts is written by Luke. Luke's a Gentile. He's a physician. He's a historian. I love his detail, incredible detail. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he also writes the book of Acts. One of them details the life and ministry of Christ. That's the Gospel of Luke and Acts details the birth and growth of the first century church, the church, us, the body of Christ. And so uh, Luke is going to be telling us today about what we should know is Luke is with Paul on this journey. Paul didn't tell him later and then Luke wrote it. Luke is with Paul. We'll see that Luke changes the tenses, uh, us, we, them. Um, Luke is with Paul. Paul had been warned two times. He'd been urged not to return to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. Other believers said, don't go. The Holy Spirit's told us you will be arrested. Paul says, I'm constrained by the Holy Spirit. He says, I have to go. In fact, the Holy Spirit's already told me that affliction, suffering, and imprisonment await me in every city I'm going to go to. Paul says that he's prepared to be imprisoned and even die for Christ. So what does Paul do? Paul goes to... Uh, Jerusalem, he shares his testimony, how Christ radically saved him. Uh, Paul used to be Saul, a persecutor of the church. God radically saves him, gives him a new identity, new affections, gives him an eternal hope in Christ Jesus. After sharing the gospel with uh, a large number of Jews, they flip out, man. This dude's a blasphemer. Uh, A riot ensues, and next thing you know, uh, the Roman tribune arrests Paul. They have Paul stretched out literally stretched out and they're ready to flog him because they're upset about this riot. And Paul, just before the whip cracks on him, Paul throws his trump card down. He says, is it lawful for you to treat a Roman citizen this way? They're taken back. They didn't know he was a Roman citizen. Paul, as a citizen of Rome, had rights similar to us. He, he had the right to a trial before, before he was punished for any sort of accusation. So next thing you know, Paul, after throwing that trump card, Paul is... Uh, sent before the local governor, Felix. He's then sent before Agrippa, the king, who's in Caesarea. He spends two years in Caesarea. This is what I want you to have in your mind. We're going to hear a portion of Paul's journey, this storm. But Paul has been in this for some two and a half years. From the time he went to Jerusalem, he's arrested. He stands before the governor. He stands before the king, a council, a tribune. He sits in a jail cell for two years, and then he's shipped off to Rome. He's been in the thick of it. In fact, the last verse of chapter 26, we learn that King Agrippa says, if he would not have thrown that trump card and appealed to Caesar, I would have let him out. Man's done nothing. But yet, he appealed to Caesar. Now, this is all part of God's plan. He stands before the the Jews in Jerusalem, Agrippa, Felix, and now he'll stand before the the ruler of the known world, and he's sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. This is all part of God's plan. This is where we find ourselves. They, they hop on a ship, a small ship out of Caesarea, Mediterranean. Think of the Mediterranean. Caesarea is here. They start moving north, um, northwest, and uh, they um, make a couple stops. Their first leg of their journey, they encounter a lot of wind. Uh, Paul is under the watch of this uh, Roman centurion named Julian. He's a part of this Augustan cohort. The best way to think of these guys is they're like our, our modern-day U.S. Marshals. 
They're extraditing prisoners to Rome. And so they're traveling along, staying close to land. Uh, the land's providing them a lot of protection from the wind that would whip across the Mediterranean. It's fall time, okay? Not the best time of year to be sailing. Um, nonetheless, they make it uh, to the port of Myra. At Myra, they find a larger ship, a cargo ship from Alexandria, uh, Mediterranean. Alexandria is down here in Egypt. Uh, uh, Greece is right here, and they're sailing over to Rome, which is over here. So they've got to sail across the Mediterranean and get up to, to Italy. They find a large cargo ship. On the second leg of their trip, um, they're beat by the wind, and they end up at this little island called Crete in the middle of the Mediterranean in a port called Fairhaven. Uh, now, Paul had warned him. Paul said, guys, we can, listen, we need to stop sailing. Paul's a seasoned traveler. He, he has traveled thousands of miles. He certainly, he certainly sailed a lot of those. He says, guys, it's not going well so far. We need to stop. We're not only going to lose the boat, it's cargo, but we're going to lose our lives. They don't listen to Paul, though. Uh, Julius, uh, the centurion, listens to the ship's owner and the ship's pilot. They decide to continue on sailing. In fact, the crew, um, the crew says, we can't stay in this port, Fairhaven. Uh, it's not fit for winter. Winter's upon us. We're just going to sail around the southern part of the island over here to a port called Phoenix. Only about 40 miles away. Same island, Crete. Teeny little island. Against Paul's better judgment, all the men take a vote and they say, yeah, let's sail to the port of Phoenix. Now, what you need, like I said, Paul's a seasoned sailor. He's a seasoned traveler. If I was on an American Airlines flight and we we're on the tarmac and we're getting ready to leave and the guy next to me says, I fly this the same route. I take this flight four times a week. And you know what? There's a lot of ice on this plane. I don't feel really good about it. I'm probably going to listen to that guy. He, he travels a lot more than I do. They didn't listen to Paul. That's where we find ourselves. They're simply trying to get... They realize they're in a bad situation. Winter's upon them. Uh, and they're going to travel east from the port of Fairhaven on the island of Crete to Phoenix. They never make it. That's where we find ourselves today. Verse 13, if you've got it open, would you turn to it and uh, just read silently along with me? I believe it's on page 608 in the, uh, the Bibles that are in the seat backs. Verse 13, chapter 27, here we find ourselves. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed across Crete, close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Caudia. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they begin the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, 
you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take, to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong, and I worship, and whom I worship. And he said to me, and he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as, as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little further on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run aground on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. This is the word of the Lord. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that scripture tells us it's living and active. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, would you uh, enlighten your, your Holy Scripture, your word to us this morning. Our desire is to experience you, to encounter you, the living God, uh, to, to, to glorify your name through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. We thank you for um, the ability to, to dive deeply into your word. We ask your blessing upon this time, upon the reading and studying of this text. May your will be done in Christ's name. Amen. Um, this is, without a doubt, uh, a tumultuous journey. 
Did you, did you track with me on that? Uh, I mean, it's, it, it's unbelievable how bad this storm is. Very, very rough. A tempestuous wind. Uh, so this wind, um, it, it moves through the uh, Mediterranean just north of the island Crete. It's picking up speed, then it hits Crete, and then it comes over the island and it just slams down on this ship. This is a very large ship. Keep in mind it has a smaller boat. That boat was used to get from the ship to land. So the ship was large enough, it, it couldn't get very close to land without running aground. Gives us an idea. There are 276 people on the ship. This is a big ship. We have three categories of people. We have prisoners, we have soldiers, and we have sailors. Uh, the men on the ship are getting absolutely rocked. Things quickly go from, from bad to worse. Verses 15 through 17 give us a picture of this progression. Uh, verse 15 says, And when the ship was caught, it was caught and could not face the wind. They simply wanted to turn the ship back northward. They're moving along Crete. They're looking at it. It's right there. But they can't get the ship to turn back in. Wind had got caught in its sail. They're being forced out to the out to sea, this is not good. He says, we could not face the wind. We gave way to it. We gave way and were driven along. Verse 16 says, we managed with difficulty. Verse 17, and thus we were driven along. The men secured the small ship to the boat, the smaller boat to the ship. They wrapped cords or rope or something around the bottom of the ship to keep it from falling apart. As the old adage goes, when it rains it pours. And man, it was pouring the sailors, the soldiers, and the prisoners, they did everything they could to try to save the ship, even the prisoners. Now, if the prisoners made it to Rome, at least they had a chance of living. But if this ship ripped apart in this tempestuous wind, no hope. So it's all hands on deck. Everybody is trying to save the ship as it's getting just beat by this violent wind. Verse 18 through 20 sums up just how bad things end up becoming. Verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, they begin the next day to jettison the cargo. Now remember, this isn't a cruise liner. This is a cargo ship. Most likely they had wheat, they had grain. Uh, they might even had animals. We're not sure. We certainly know they have wheat. They get rid of that later on. But they start jettisoning the cargo. They, the very reason these men are sailing, they left Myra to sail from from Myra, which would be here, to drop down, Crete is right about here, drop down and come back up to Italy, is to deliver this cargo. That's what they got paid for. The, the reason they braved uh, these rough conditions is they get paid for this cargo. But things are bad, so they, the first thing that goes is the cargo. They jettison it. We've got to get it out. If we have to lighten the ship, we don't want to run aground. Uh, uh, the lighter the ship, the less likely we are to be ripped apart. That wind can just sort of push us and we'll go with it. Um, verse 19 tells us on the third day, I, I can't even imagine three days, like three days, I, I, I get sick sitting in the bathtub. You know what I'm saying? I'm getting nauseous right now. Picture it, picture it. it, it it's rough. They're just getting beat up. They don't have their cute little yellow uh, Morton Salt girl uh, raincoat you know, stuff gear on. They're, they're soaked to the bone. They're most likely cold. They're on the deck of the ship trying to do whatever they can, throw the cargo over. Um, things are bad. What does the text tell us? Verse 19, on the third day, they listen to this, this is amazing, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. 
with their own hands. Now how interesting is it that, that Luke tells us they threw the ship's fishing gear over with their own hands? Now he could have said they used a crane. Sure, they didn't have a hydraulic crane, but maybe they had some, a winch, ropes, something. Uh, why doesn't he tell us they, they kicked it off? No, he says they used their hands to throw the ship's tackle overboard because Luke wants us to see how dire the situation is. I mean, in the midst of unlimited water, they have limited resources. Just a certain amount of food to sustain them on the ship. And then this fishing tackle is how they survive and get more food. It's how they secure more resources. And with their very own hands, they throw the fishing gear overboard. That's bad. That's bad. When you're in the middle of the water and you say, let's get rid of our fishing gear, that's a bad thing. The reason Luke is telling us this is because they're beginning to lose hope. They're beginning to lose hope. They're grasping. We see verse 20 here. We can clearly see they lose all hope. Verse 20, when, the sun, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us. It wasn't a small tempest. It wasn't a small wind. Luke says, all hope of our being saved was abandoned. That was it. Complete despair. All hope of our being saved was abandoned. No sun. Imagine it's just, just, just dark out. Maybe you can tell it's daylight, but it's, you can't even see the sun. No sun. At night, no stars to, gar- to guide the ship. All hope of our being saved was abandoned. Uh, this line is powerful. Uh, I think I could see somebody finding it in debris of the Titanic, maybe a page from a journal, maybe a journal, and the last thing it says is, all hope of our being saved was abandoned, dot, dot, dot. That's bad. These men are lost at sea. Now, how many of you can relate to that? We're talking about a storm on a ship, but how many of you are saying, man, I, that sounds a lot like something I've gone through in my life. I've gone through something. I, you know, I, I, I felt the winds coming. Uh, I, I fought it. I thought we were, I was through. But then the winds kept coming. The storms kept coming. I, I got a flat tire on my way to work. Uh, no biggie. I had a spare. Uh, and then someone a week later rear-ends you on the Edens. Okay, neck's starting to get a little bit tight. Hey, uh, uh, two weeks later, your child breaks the brand new iPhone you bought a day earlier by throwing it on the sidewalk. you your first iPhone? Okay, things are getting rough. You begin to go into survival mode. You try to lighten the ship. You try to ditch some of the cargo. Maybe that means you withdraw. You withdraw from your friends or your family. Then your car's transmission blows, costing you more than you can spare. You have a miscarriage. Your spouse is diagnosed with what looks like cancer. You lose your job just before Christmas. Hey, it's never a good thing. When somebody says, hey, the boss wants to talk to you, and then you go in the boss's office and sit down, and he gets up from his desk and closes the door. Uh, that's not good. A family member nearly dies, and another one does die. You have surgery. You can't work. Well, it doesn't matter. You don't have a job. This is a tempestuous wind. It's blowing. It's just one thing after another after another. You die further into survival mode. You're in despair. You've lost hope. You jettison the cargo. Even the fishing gear. You start pushing away the very things that are there to help you survive. So maybe you leave church. Maybe you leave the safety of your eternal family. You just disappear. Maybe you begin drinking or using. You try to sleep the storm away. You medicate. You rage. You lie. You hide. Like the 
Those on the great cargo ship are violently being storm-tossed. You give up hope. Man, there's no hope in this. You abandon all hope. I've experienced that. I've certainly experienced some of that. Not since I've known Christ not giving to drinking or using. Or, but there are even times uh, in my early walk with Christ that I pulled away from the body of Christ. I hid. I, I stopped worshiping on Sunday with the saints. I went into survival mode. The question for us today is, do we have hope? Is there any hope for the believer in these storms? The answer is yes. These, the answer is most certainly yes. Let's look to verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. Man, that's, that's kind of the last thing you want to hear, isn't it? When everything is falling apart. Somebody told, I t- Hey, I told you so. Now, I don't think that's what Paul is doing here. I don't think he's giving a, I told you so. I think what Paul is doing is giving a primer. He's preparing them. He's trying to grab their attention. I think in short, what Paul is doing is saying, you didn't listen to me before. You should have. So, listen now. Listen now. And we're going to see right away, we're going to see that God is with Paul in the midst of the storm. And the first way we see God with Paul is through God's presence. We have the presence of God, just like Paul did, in the midst of the storm. What does Paul say? You should, have, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Verse 22, Yet now I urge you to take heart. Take heart. Listen to what Paul says. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. This very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Did you notice this very night in the midst of Paul's storm, real time, not a week earlier, not a month earlier. Paul's not saying, hey, I remember once uh, the angel of, the, uh, of God came and told me he was with me. Paul's saying, right now, guys, this very night, before I'm opening my mouth to you, God's presence. I'm experiencing God's presence. God's with us. We have the same thing in the midst of our real-time suffering. In the midst of the storm, the presence of God is with us. This is what Paul says to him. The angel of God, whom I serve and worship, has, has told me everything's going to be okay. Yeah, we're going to lose the ship, but none of us are going to die. So what does it look like for us as believers to experience the presence of God in the midst of our storms? I think we can experience this in two ways. I think the believer can experience the presence of God through life storms, through the Spirit of God, through the Holy Spirit, and also through the Bride of Christ, the church. The church and the Holy Spirit. This is how we experience the presence of God in the midst of our own storms. The Holy Spirit is not a vague shadow or impersonal force. He's the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is is equally God. And all divine attributes that are attributed to the Father and the Son are equally attributed to the Holy Spirit. Scripture tells us the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth, given to guide us in truth. He is the Spirit of grace the Spirit of holiness. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit another helper. You will receive another helper. The helper gives the belief, is given to the believer forever to teach the believer and bring remembrance to all that Jesus had said. 
1 Corinthians 3.16 says that God's Spirit dwells in the believer. Acts 1.8 tells us that the believer receives power from the Holy Spirit. Acts continues to tell us the Holy Spirit communicates. Actually communicates and speaks to the believer. The Holy Spirit is referred to, again, as the helper who convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Romans 8, wonderful chapter, filled with promises, tells us that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. He's the Spirit of adoption who leads the believer. The Holy Spirit reminds us that we've been adopted. When we think we're alone, the Holy Spirit reminds us, you're not. I'm with you. The very presence of God is tabernacling, is with us. Just as the presence of God was in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, God's Spirit resides in us. In the midst of our storms, this is good news. This is good news. God comforts us in our weakness. We've been adopted. We have the spirit of adoption. I I know that at times it feels like we're alone, but Scripture tells us we're not. We have the helper. We have the spirit of truth, the spirit of grace. The very presence of God is with us, leading us, guiding us, bringing God's Word to our memory. In our weakness, the Holy Spirit intercedes with us. This is wonderful news. Take heart. We have a helper. We have the presence of God in the midst of the storm. The second way we can experience the presence of God is through the church. In addition to God's Spirit, we've been given by the way of God's Spirit. You see, every believer has the Spirit of God living in them. It makes us one. Scripture refers to the church as the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that there are many parts but one body. And that each part should have equal concern for each other. Romans tells us that we are to weep when our brothers and sisters weep and rejoice when our brothers and sisters rejoice. So what does it look like when you're in a storm and you desperately need to see and feel and sense the presence of God? I believe you should call upon the Holy Spirit. Lord, by the way of your Spirit, I need you to encourage me. Remind me that I've been adopted, that I'm yours, I belong to you. Bring Scripture to my mind, Lord. Call upon the body of Christ. What does this look like? Number one, just be honest about your storm. I'm going through a very difficult time. I'm in a very difficult time right now. Open your mouth. Let go of your pride. Humble yourself. Tell your brothers and sisters at the beginning of the storm. Not at the end of it. Not after you've tried to suck it up for two weeks or four weeks or six months. Not after you've lost everything and not after everything's broken down it. You've reached a place of no hope or despair. Open up your mouth right away and tell your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're not in a storm and you know a brother and sister in Christ who are, enter it. You have the Spirit of God with you as well. Enter it. We should watch each other. Know when each other don't show up. Not so that we can judge each other. Oh, so-and-so wasn't here on Sunday. But no, that's an indication. Oh, she may be going through a rough time. Let me begin praying for her. And then call her. Let me, when I see her or him, say, are you okay? Man, I'm really worried about you. What's going on? Enter into their storm. Sometimes I think, um, well, there's a lot of this sort of, quote-unquote, the American dream that's uh, uh, bled into the church and it's absolutely corrupt. Sometimes we have this uh, attitude, well, people need to help them selves first. And that's absolutely wrong. That's not rooted in the gospel. Um, I'd say about 30 minutes.
30 minutes. Yes. Yep. 30 minutes. Oh, let's wait till the end, Maureen. Okay, thank you. Um, this, we have the Spirit of God with us. We can enter into other people's storms. This whole idea, well, they need to help themselves first. That's what I was just saying. Here's the wild thing. You, you didn't help yourself first before Christ helped you. Man, humble yourself. Don't practice... I'm going to step up on a little milk crate. I call it cordial Christianity. This is when you tell somebody in person, on the phone, in an email, in a text, you tell them, my car just broke down. We went through a really tough time. I can't get out to my job in Schaumburg. I'm probably going to lose my job if I can't get out there. We don't have the money to get it fixed. Um, fact is, uh, if I put money into the car, I, I can't feed my family. And, and then the other person says, well, we're praying for you. Let us know what else we can do. Uh, I, just I just told you. I just told you what's going on. And, and of course, then the, the cordial thing is to say, oh, well, thank you so much. You, you, you've already done enough. I encourage you, when somebody tells you something like that, you know what? Show up at their doorstep and say, here's the keys to my car. Rock it for a week. Get out to Schaumburg so you don't lose your job. I'll take, I can take the CTA. If somebody tells you they're hurting, don't make them write out a menu, a shop, grocery shopping list. Go to Jewel. Stock up. Pull some money out of your pocket and show up and drop it on their front doorstep. Leave them a note. I love you. I'm praying for you. Here's what the hands of Christ look like. Hey, I can see that you're struggling. We want to watch your kids tonight so you can go on a date. Don't practice cordial Christianity. God's given us His presence in the Holy Spirit and in His church. Call upon the Holy Spirit. He'll remind you of that. He'll comfort you. He's the comforter. And call upon the body of Christ when you feel that storm coming. Oh, I know what this feels like. When you start thinking, well, when it rains, it hey, I need to talk to another brother and sister in Christ. So that's the presence of God. We have the presence of God in the storm. The second thing we see is the promise of God, verses 24 and 25. Let's look at God's promise to Paul in the midst of the storm. So Paul has said to the men, listen, check this out. He said, this is what God has communicated to Paul through this angel. Do not be afraid, Paul. That's absolutely beautiful. That it wasn't, hey, you, hey, 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 what's your face? It was Paul, his adopted child. Do not be afraid, Paul. It's absolutely beautiful that God calls Paul by his name. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, this is a gracious God, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. What an amazing promise. You must stand before Caesar. God being gracious not only saves Paul, his elect, Paul the believer, but because of Paul, God shows his faithfulness not only to Paul, but all the men. Julius, the rest of his cohort, the sailors, God saves them all. An incredible promise. An incredible promise that God gives not only Paul, but all these men. Now Paul shares we have a promise in the midst of this storm. Take heart, Paul says. Verse 25, So take heart, men, for I have faith in God. It will be exactly as I have been told. 
Why does Paul have this faith in God? Because Paul knows that God is a promise-keeping God. God keeps His promise to Paul, and He keeps His promise to us, His children. Scripture is filled with thousands of promises from God. There are roughly some 7,000 promises from God to His children. That's amazing. Hebrews 13.5 says, God has promised to never leave us or forsake us. Jesus and His great commission to all believers says to go into the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then there's a promise at the end of the great commission He's given us. He says, and I will be with you until the end of the age. I will be with you. What a great promise. So this is what Paul's doing. Paul's fulfilling that great commission, and he knows that Christ has promised. I will be with you till the end of the age. These are amazing promises that God won't leave us in the midst of the storm. So how do we, how do you and I, take a hold of God's promises in the midst of these storms? We read God's Word. We read Scripture. Scripture tells us that Christ, that, that God has granted us through Christ His precious and very great promises. God's granted us His precious and very great promises. 2 Peter 1.4 if we want to know God's promises and receive the hope that they offer, we must read God's Word. They're in here. They're in here. Romans 15.4 tells us that it's through Scripture that we receive encouragement and hope. It actually says that. You receive encouragement and hope through God's Word. The psalmist in chapter 119 says that God's Word is a source of hope. This is a source of hope. It's a source of encouragement. This is because Scripture contains all those promises. Promises made possible to us because of Christ. Christ makes it possible for us to grab a hold of God's promises. In Christ, all of God's promises are yes and amen. As you go through the storm, meditate on Scripture. Marin let, let, let it marinate in you. Let it remind you and reassure you of God's love. There's a verse that uh, God brought to me during the midst of this seven-month storm. Seven months. Uh, praise God, I think we're through it. Um, much of what I shared at the beginning, that, that's the stuff we went through. Uh, a miscarriage, a transmission blowing. Rear-ended twice on the Edens. Uh, that sort of thing. One, my mother nearly dying. person's grandmother dying. Major health issues. I might have cancer. I have a tumor on my left kidney. Just boom, 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 seven months. We think we're at the end of that now. God brought to mind, He brought me actually, through His Holy Spirit, His presence with me, brought me to a promise. This is a promise that King David spoke back to God. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. God's steadfast love endures forever. I kept saying this to myself. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Why? The text tells us, for He is good. The text tells us, how is He good? Because His steadfast love endures forever. This helped me praise God in the midst of the storm. I held on to God's promise that Scripture tells me He's steadfast, that He loves me. It reminded me that God is good. When all around me the waves were rocking me, a great tempestuous wind, violently storm-tossed. I want to encourage you to grab a hold of a verse 
type it in your smartphone. That's, that's one of the greatest things to do. Boom, it's right there. You just read it. You read it. Put it in your little notepad section or somewhere in there. Write it down on a bedroom mirror. Write it down in the bathroom mirror. Put a marker and write it there so you see it and read it. Write it on a piece of paper and put it on the dash of your car. Tuck it in above the steering wheel. Tape it above the stereo. Put it at your desk at work. Recite it over and over. Pray it. When you pray it, pray it. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. Thank you, Lord, that your steadfast love endures forever. God loves hearing His promises spoken back to Him. Pray them. Take heart. Take heart. Just as Paul tells the men, take heart. We've been given hope in God's promises. They're there. They're there. They're accessible. God has made His Word accessible. Hold on to those promises. So in the midst of life's storms, we see that we have God's presence with us through His Holy Spirit and through His church. Call upon them. We have God's promise in His Word. And we also see that God has a plan for us. Verses 25 and 26. Let's start back at 25. So take heart, Paul says to the men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. Check it out, 26. But we must run aground on some island. God says this is what it's going to look like. Now here's the wild thing. God says you've got to run the ship to ground, but He doesn't unpack what all of that's going to entail. I want you to remember on day three they lost all hope. Day three, they're done. Throwing the fishing gear over, the cargo over, they're done. Chapter, uh, verse 21 lets us know that many days had gone by. Many had gone by after day three before an angel of God spoke to, to Paul and gave God's promise and God's plan. And then the rest of our text tells us it's on day 15 that the men finally run the ship to ground. So God says you're going to run a ship aground, but he didn't say what the next 10 days are going to look like. Not at all. They continued. They continued to be rocked by that violent storm. They continued. It's so bad that verse 33, Luke tells us they hadn't eaten a single thing in 14 days. I mean, just picture it. It's bad. It's going to be pretty bad. I might miss a day or two eating. Maybe if things are really bad, I'd probably push it a few days. Maybe if I'm fasting, but they're not fasting here. There's no hope. They're being rocked. So God has given His plan, but He hasn't unpacked the specifics of it. And you know what? This is one of the hardest things for the believer. We know that God has a plan for us. We have no clue what it looks like. No clue. His Word tells us He has a plan, but what does that look like? Ephesians 1.6 tells us it's God who began a work in us a faithful work, and He will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Okay, He began it. He began the work in us. He'll bring it to completion. But what does it look like from A to Z? No clue. It's, it's through God's uh, sovereign grace that He saves us. His Holy Spirit uh, secures us, carries us through, encourages us, equips us, loves us until we meet Christ, until we, until we stand face to face. But what does the rest of it look like? I want to ensure you that if you've wrestled with what, what is God's plan for my life, you're not alone. There are thousands upon thousands of books, of sermons, uh, of lectures about God's plan for your life. I want to ease your mind. This should ease your mind a little bit if you've ever struggled with this. Big picture. Big picture plan 
for your life. God's plan for your life. You want to know what it is? It's Jesus. Big picture is Jesus. That you might know Him. Ephesians 1, 5-10. We just worked through Ephesians uh, 2013. Uh, wonderful book of the Bible. Much hope and encouragement. And Ephesians 5, 1, 5-10 tells us, In love He predestined us for adoptions, adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He blessed us in the Beloved. The Beloved is Jesus. In Him, Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses through Jesus. All of this according to the riches of God's grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom. Listen to this. This is awesome. Which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose. Listen again. Which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. God's plan is to unite all things to Him through Jesus Christ. That His will might be known to us through Jesus Christ. This is awesome. This is the, this is the big picture. Jesus. God is uniting us to Himself through Jesus. That we might not know God through Jesus. That we might experience our Creator through Jesus. The second person of the Trinity. This is the big plan. But what, what is the smaller plan? What does that day-to-day plan look like? As it unfolds, as those guys probably went another ten, eight, nine, ten days in that sea getting rocked, what does God's plan look like as we're going through that storm? I believe we can know God's plan for us by knowing God's will. And we do this by seeking to live in His will. That sounds kind of Kind of weird, maybe. How do you live in God's will? Would I just step into it and zip up? How do I live in God's will? I want you to think of God's will. See, many of us think of it as something you run to in an emergency. It's like an emergency support system. Okay, like a defibrillator. You only need God's will when you're about to die. I just need to know what you have for me, Lord. I need to know. I need to know. Should I take the job? Should I marry her? Should I marry him? What's your will? We just simply... We go to it like a defibrillator. I need a charge. I need to know. We ought to think of God's will instead like a pacemaker. That thing that's implanted in us and it causes us to beat. causes our heart to beat. It sustains us. Remember when Jesus is in the wilderness and and Satan tries to tempt him by eating this bread. Jesus says to Satan, no. He says, my food is to do the will of the Father. That's our spiritual food to do the will of the Father. Think of that. God's will sustains us like food sustains us, like the cargo would have sustained the men on the ship. God's will sustains us. So see God's will as a process. It's a process, not a technique or program. I just need to know the formula so I can get a yes or no, so I know if I should marry him or her or take the job or uh, put $30 of gas in my car versus 40 It's a process. So dive deep into an intimate relationship with God. Do so through prayer and reading of God's Word. Don't view Scripture as a quick fix. It's a how-to manual. How do I know? It's a how-to manual. It's a how-to guide. How do I know God? It reveals God, His character, His attributes. It reveals His will to us. Remember, God's will isn't the end. It's a means 
to know God and become more like Jesus. Saints, take heart. God has a plan for us in the midst of the storm. He promised us that He has a plan for us. Pursue His will. His presence is with us. He's given us His promises. And He has a plan for us. Pursue His will. And lastly, in the storm, we see God's power. We see the power of God in the storm. Verse 27. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. Now they probably heard the sound, distant sound of, wind, of waves crashing. So what happens? The men try, uh, the men, um, the uh, sailors, they try to use their own measure, their own power to save themselves. Verse 29 tells us, fearing that they would run aground on the rocks, they let four anchors down. Paul already told them, we have to run the ship aground. And they're afraid to do the very thing. They're not trusting in the plan of God. They're not trusting in the power of God. But God said, it'll be His power. You, it's going to look like this. The men don't want it to look like that. So what happens? They throw four anchors down um, at the stern. That's the rear of the ship. And then the sailors try to pull a McShady. They get in the little boat. They row. Hey, we're just going to go to the front of the ship. We're going to go to the bow. We're going to tie and secure some anchors there. They were trying to get out of there. They wanted to bail. They wanted to get on their own. And what does Paul say to the soldiers? Hey, if those sailors leave, we all die. In fact, he says, you die. He tells the soldiers, you die if they leave. And so the soldiers cut the ropes and let the, let the boat go. They're trying to save themselves, but God is going to save them. He will save them. His power will save them. Paul holds to the plan and promises of God that it's God's power by which they'll be saved, not their own. must have been an interesting thing to see the soldiers flex their, flex their muscles, um, their military might. Remember, they just sort of hopped on board the cargo ship. They, they don't have any power or authority over it. It belongs to the owner and the ship's captain. But they certainly flexed their military muscle. Get back out of that boat and get in here. We're not dying because of you guys. Cut the ropes loose. So Paul urges the men to eat. Let's listen to this uh, promise of God's power. Verse 34. Paul, therefore I urge you, take some food, for it will give you strength. This is awesome. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Not, not only will you be saved, but a, not a single hair is going to perish from your head. That's God's promise that's God's plan and that's God's power the following day the men notice the beach they cut the anchors loose they throw up the sail they're trying to head and run the ship aground on the beach so what happens they strike a reef the ship runs aground on this reef just as God had promised the ship would run aground the front of the ship the bow is stuck the rear the stern is getting broken apart by the waves crashing it so now what happens first the sailors now the soldiers try to use their power to save themselves. It doesn't work that way. What do they do? They says, the text says they devise a plan to kill all the prisoners. We just made it. The beach is right there. Well, if a Roman soldier lost a prisoner, they were afraid, first of all, that some of the prisoners might swim and escape. If you had a prisoner that escaped, it meant you died. This is why, remember the Philippian jailer, when he comes to the jail cell and Paul's no longer there, he's ready to off himself. He's going to kill himself. You lose a prisoner, you die. Paul, again, holds to God's power, 
not by the sailors, not by the soldiers. And so justice says, that's not what we're doing. Julius, rather, we're not doing that. So he tells those who can swim to jump first. The rest of them get on pieces of the ship. They float to shore. It wasn't their power. It wasn't the sailors. It wasn't the soldiers. It was God's power that would get them get them to shore. God shows His power. Again, an amazing verse, verse 44. And so, so it was that all were brought safely to land. So just... Just as with Paul, God shows His power in the midst of our storms. He will sovereignly bring about His plan through the storm. It's not our power. How do we experience God's power in the storm? I think Scripture makes it clear. We acknowledge our weakness in the midst of the storm. 2 Corinthians 9.10 This is Paul saying, that speaking of what God told him. Paul says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient to you, for my promise is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We experience God's power by acknowledging our weakness. Oh God, I'm weak. I'm weak. I'm not trying to fight and do this with my own might. Man, a month into the storm I was in, very quickly I realized, I'm weak. You're strong. You're strong. I rely on Your power. I rely on Your power, God. We boast in our weakness. With all the suffering that we go through, the storms that we go through, every believer should ask themselves, has sin brought this storm on? If a husband commits adultery, his wife divorces him and leaves him, his kids abandon him, he loses the house, he loses the cars, he's in a storm but his sin brought it on. So we do need to ask God, has our sin brought on a storm? But many times, just as with Job, the biblical character Job in the Old Testament, we're in a storm not because of sin or disobedience. We're in a storm because God is refining us for our good and His glory. He's making us more like Christ. And these times, praise God during this time. Lord, praise You for Your strength. Praise You for Your power. I boast in my weakness. I'm weak. You are strong. Praise You. When you are soaked to the bone, when the wind has just ripped you apart, you feel like there's no hope. Christ's power rests on you, Scripture tells us. I'm weak. You're strong. Take heart, church. God's power will bring you safely to land. In the midst of the storm, we have the presence of God through His Spirit in the church. Call upon them as the church reach out to others in the storm. We have the promise of God. Scripture's riddled with them. Hold on to those. Those are our anchors. Hold on to them, believers. We have God's plan. Pursue God's plan through His will. Lord, what is Your will for me? Today I surrender myself to You. Live out Your will in my life today. And then we have God's power. Remember in our weakness, we are strong. We're actually strong because we have a strong God in the midst of our weakness. If you don't know Christ, you don't have this hope. You just simply do not. You have some sort of generic, some sort of weak, some sort of temporary bumper sticker type hope. You, have, you don't have a lasting hope. You will go from storm to storm in this life and you will spend eternity in the storms and torment of hell being violently storm-tossed. 
Scripture tells us in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Salvation is a free gift of God. It's, it's through God's grace, by faith alone, that we're saved, that we're freed from the deserving wrath of God. All of this is made possible through the sacrificial blood of Christ. He bore the penalty for our sins on a Roman cross. He bore those in his body on a cross for us. If you, I urge you, if you come here every Sunday, if you're just visiting us, whatever is going on with you, um, call upon God, repent, confess your sins, and receive his grace. Receive eternal life and eternal hope that in the midst of this life, we will have an abundant hope in the storms. The storms will come. There are people like myself and my family, those on our launch team, they went through storms in 2013. Probably many of you, some of you might be in a storm right now. Most all of us will go through a storm in 2014. Our hope is in Christ alone. Put your hope in Him. Celebrate God's grace that He's given us hope in the storms.